Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well, and I've got a new career-related episode to bring to you. And if you've never listened to one of our career insights before, this is when I talk to people from across the industry in different roles from different backgrounds and we learn a little bit about their journey and what makes them tick. The goal to hopefully extract some useful takeaways for any young person looking to embark on their career. So I hope you enjoy it. In this interview recorded in 2021, I spoke to Bilal Hafiz, who is the former global head of international fixed income strategy at Nomura the head of multi-asset research and an advisor to the CEO at Deutsche Bank and started his 20-year career at JP Morgan as an FX strategist. He covers how he started his career in finance, the difference of working in global markets to the investment banking division, alongside a whole bunch of really excellent tips around mentoring, methodology, work-life balance, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you find it useful. Yeah, sure. So I can... Uh kind of give you the the full life story i mean it's, i grew up in in oxford um but not in the nice part of oxford uh, kind of the other side of oxford if people know oxford as a student i was quite mathematically minded um and i also had a great economics teacher at high school and uh, he really encouraged me to pursue my interest in economics so so from that point i really knew i wanted to either do economics or maths at uni um, in the end, I decided to do economics at university, mainly because I felt it was a bit more applied. And I, and I really did like kind of the questions uh, economics asked. Um, and then I went to uni uh, to do economics. I went to Cambridge, so obviously a very good university. I did sort of well academically, A-levels and all of that stuff. Um, and so at uni, I did economics. Um, interestingly, while I was doing economics at uni, I wasn't 100% sure which career I wanted to pursue, you know, because I came from a background... Uh, where, you know, people who I knew, you know, friends and family 
weren't really in the, in the professional world. You know, they're more likely to be sort of taxi drivers or work in right. mobile phone shops and things like that. So, um, so while I was at uni, um, I you know looked into different careers: management consulting, um, accounting, and and banking. Um, and I applied for internships in my penultimate year at university. Um, strangely, all the accounting and consulting firms all rejected me for internships, but banks accepted me. And so I did a summer internship at JP Morgan. This was back in 1997. So kind of a bit early, you know, a bit way I feel really old now saying that. Um, <laughs> but that summer, if you kind of look back, that was a summer where Asia had a financial crisis, where the Thai baht devalued and that sort of set off a whole chain reaction. And so I, I kind of got into my, my first exposure to markets was during a time of crisis, which is very exciting. And I was building models at that time, econometric models, trying to predict the next currencies to devalue. Um, now, as it happened, we built all these really complicated, I built all these complicated models, but it turned out the best predictor of whether a country would devalue was whether uh, a neighboring country had devalued in the previous three months. So right. with all the high power econometrics I tried to use, yeah. the single best predictor was just has another country devalued recently or not. And that, that basically predicted it better than any macro variables. Um, mm. So that also was kind of instructive to me. Um, so then after that, I got a graduate job at JP Morgan, um, you know, after I graduated, which was 98. And so I went on the JP Morgan training program. And during the training program, that's when Russia defaulted and, and LTCM, which was a big hedge fund in 98, uh, went down. Um, and that led to all, at the time, a massive panic in markets, which in hindsight looks like a tiny blip in the grand scheme of things. But LTCM was essentially putting on huge relative value trades and carry trades, trying to kind of earn, uh, leveraging up um, uh, their positions to try to uh, magnify the returns on tiny returns. Um, they weren't expecting Russia to devalue and that sort right. of set off a chain reaction. Um, so, so that was my start. And uh, I, I actually had a short stint in mergers and acquisitions, which at the time was kind of hot area, but I absolutely hated it, you know, in the end. So, I so, so, so on that point, yeah, that, that's a good one because we, the students that we encountered and the underlying purpose of our technology, as I explained to you on a call before, is about students really need to experience these different elements to really then know, ah, that's probably not what I want to do, or I really love this, this is the area. And so global markets to, to M&A. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge, huge difference. I mean, culturally, it's very different, you know, right. working on the trading floor, the hours are different on the trading floor, whether you're sales trading or research, you tend to start very early, 6.30, 7 in the morning, and you work till say five, and it's a very intense day. You know, every hour is very intense. When you work on the banking side, like mergers and acquisitions or uh, debt capital markets and, and that side of the bank, you tend to come in at nine. The day's a bit slower, but you tend to finish at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. or mm. you work till two in the morning, you know, working on deals. So you're, you're you know, the, the whole culture is very different. And um, it's, you know, it, it's a, you know, you find on the banking side, people wear their suits, they wear their ties on the trading floor. You know, it's more casual. People don't try not to wear their ties, you know, people <laughs> yeah. are a bit more rude and mm. uh you know so so there's a very different sort of cultural sort of difference between the two but fundamentally the reason i didn't like MA was i just found the first the hours were terrible but also the work i found intellectually wasn't that stimulating and through that experience i realized i do like kind of the intellectual side of you know the work i'm doing and so mm. that naturally 
made me think that I should go back into research, which was the area I'd done in my summer internship. The reason I did M&A was at the time, that was the hottest area around tech M&A. Um, at JP Morgan, that was like the area to be in. And yeah. I kind of got caught up with the hype. Um, but then I moved back into research. So I kind of crossed the line again from banking into, um, into, into markets. And I started off in foreign exchange at JP Morgan in 98, 99. Um, and you know, what I did there was I kind of focused a lot on indicators and models so building um, uh, measures of positioning in markets, uh, measures of sentiment. Um, so kind of a bit more on, on the sort of quantitative side, you could say. Mm. But what was really important was that the head of the team, who was my boss, was a guy called Alfonso Pratt Guy, who uh, is an Argentinian guy who later went on to become the governor of the Central Bank of Argentina and the finance minister of Argentina up until wow. a few years ago. Um, but I was very lucky to have him as a boss. And what I would say to people early on in their careers, um, don't get so focused on kind of the glamour of the role and those sorts of things, but who your mentor, who your manager will be and your mentor is very, very important. And he was awesome as a, as a manager. He trained me up really well. He really instilled a lot of confidence in me. He gave me a, a really good way of looking at markets. And that made a huge, huge difference for me and, and, and really kind of built me up to kind of uh, become a good, good researcher. Um, and in terms of how he made me relate to markets was that he, he kept pushing me back to think about whatever I'm researching, what I'm, whatever I'm looking at, how does it relate to markets? You know, because... In the research world, it's very easy to get hooked, you know, to get obsessed with the, the economic side. Oh, the economy is going to do this or that and have mm. arguments about inflation. But what's really important is how's the market going to, what does it mean for markets? Right. And what, what I find and, um, and, and the academic literature supports this as well is that, you know, one challenge is to, okay, predict which way growth is going to go or inflation. But the other challenge is to work out the relationship between growth, inflation, and the markets, you know, because you could have a perfect forecast of where growth is going to go, but its relationship to markets might be completely different. You know, it may not be the case that higher growth will lead to stronger equities, or it might be the other way around for some reason. Um, and so half the, half the job as a researcher is almost to kind of work out what is the relationship between the data you see and markets, you know, so, uh, so there's forecasting the data or trying to work out which way the data is going to go. But then the other side is mapping it to, to markets. And so I spent a lot of time doing work in that, in that area. Um, so, you know, I started my career effectively at JP Morgan, then JP Morgan got taken over by Chase Manhattan, which was a big sort of commercial bank. And JP Morgan was this kind of um, very kind of um, uh, elite kind of investment bank. And so the Chase took over JP Morgan, the culture changed a lot. And within a year, most of the old JP Morgan people had left. And then I also decided to leave and I joined Deutsche Bank in 2002. And that was the time when Deutsche Bank was really, you know, uh, building up and powering up to become like a, one of the biggest fixed income, uh, you know, banks in the world. Um, so I started off there in 2002 in the foreign exchange department uh, on the research side. And um, I ended up becoming the global head of foreign exchange research there. Uh, and I did a lot of work on building trading models, which ended up becoming ETFs, which today we call it smart beta, you know, carry models, valuation models. But I kind of worked on some of the first ones ever off those in FX markets. Um, 
uh, which now you know people call uh, smart beta or factor models. So I worked on kind of the very early versions, and that and part of the reason I was able to do that was one was I was inclined that way as a researcher to look at markets in that way, but also we had a great structuring team, a great trading trading team, and very innovative foreign exchange department there, um, and up becoming the, the biggest market share bank in FX, you know, in the years I was there. So, um, so on, so that, that, on that point, yeah. just to, to jump and ask you a question is when you start, you, you obviously would have gone through a series of different responsibility kind of roles, if you like, up to global head position. Do, does, do you move further away from being like in a tra traditional role when you move higher up and you assume more responsibilities, you kind of move a little bit further away from the coalface of doing the actual nitty gritty of, of work. Does that apply in the experience that you had or is it that you're deploying your model and the others are then implementing that almost? How, do, how does it yeah, no, that's work? A, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, it's, it's very personal to a lot of different people, how they approach this. Um, my personal thing was I always, uh, you know, I always, I always did my own research in the end. And um, the, the thing that does happen as you get more senior is that you end up spending more time speaking to clients. So you end up, you know, you're on the road traveling all the time, all the way around the world from Japan to the US to China and so on speaking to clients. So what happens is you have less time to do the work, you know, to do the nitty gritty work, um, but you have more time debating and having discussions with clients. Mm. And so in that sense, your work changes, you're having, you know, the, these kind of more open ended discussions, which then means that you have to rely on your team to do more of the nitty gritty work. Um, so, so at some point in your career, you have to make that transition from being a junior to a senior where you have to move away from having your um your self-esteem linked to spreadsheet work yeah. and you know and you have to move away from that to say okay i'll now kind of have a you know overview of what's going on in that level but i can't do the day-to-day -day. so you kind of make make that sort of transition um at the same time um when you do end up traveling a lot that does allow you to read people's research a lot more as well. So whether it's your own team's research or whether it's uh, academic research or just any other research. So that's, you, you end up kind of absorbing a lot in, in that context. Um, so that's what, what I ended up doing. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things is the, when I talk to, we're, we're in a different, I guess, position where we don't have an in-house research with our view or house call and things like that. Yeah. So what we do is we always, have the guys they consume lots of different bank research or what they can get hold of now with regulatory change and so on so the idea being there is that I, I try to encourage them to broaden their their kind of view of the world on certain matters what does x bank think what does y bank think what are the merits behind their their call for for so on and so forth so um is it kind of a similar process that you'd recommend in that formulating of a macro view because i always try to dispel the complexity around it for a lot of these guys because of i guess the the training of where they're at and their development on that side to simplify it and it's you know by consuming this this content and then then find your own way to articulate your view which is basically based on other people's research more than your own so to speak um, for a yeah. retail investor, is that a, an appropriate? Yeah, kind of yeah. I mean, I think um, one, it sort of depends on what style of trading and investing you do. Um, that's that's important in terms of how you do this. Um, I think also it's important to follow certain people that you like, so you understand how they look at markets. So if you follow a particular research 
um, provider, you know, whether it's a bank or an independent, um, just just kind of follow their line of thought and see how it evolves over time. Because what you find is that everyone's got their biases. So some people, um, and the, and the, the most fundamental bias is some people are uh, optimistic all the time, and some people are pessimistic all the time. So I always generally... used to think Deutsche were pessimistic. Yeah, yeah. On so payrolls, Deutsch... payrolls estimate would always be at the bottom yeah, end of the spectrum. Yeah, and so you you kind of have 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 that. Um, and actually, individual researchers have their biases. So, like when I was at Deutsche, there was you know one economist who tended to be very positive all the time, and then one tend to be very negative. So, you then have to kind of make adjustments for that. So, you know, okay, that person's always bearish on the world. Um, so, when they become slightly less bearish, that's an interesting signal to you. Then mm. that means okay, it's time to really load up on risk. Equally, when someone's um, optimistic and they and they become slightly less optimistic, then that's an important signal. Um, so, so I think one thing is to, you know, have some consistency in who you follow and understand the ups and downs and, and follow somebody who you like, you know, so, um, so that's important. The thing I would say, though, is I think it is important to do some of your own research as well. It doesn't need to be any, anything too complicated. It could just be somebody, for example, could be saying, um, someone could be saying that, okay, uh, copper prices are going up a lot, you know, so you should expect bond yields to go up. Um, so what you can do is you can just download that data into a spreadsheet. You can get it in lots of different, you know, freely available websites and just do a chart yourself. And then you can see, you know, do the lines move together or not. And right. a researcher in a research report, they might compress the time horizon. So it makes it look like the correlation is very high. But then if you extend it back, you end up seeing actually half the time they don't follow each other at all. So then you can then make your judgment, say, okay, I now understand how the data moves and that research is just zooming into one particular area and maybe that's not so important. So a lot of things, you can just do very basic things like that yourself. And I think it's important to do some original work yourself. Yeah. So, so talk me through then the, the transition going from db namura to macro hive what you're doing yeah, now i sure, mean having yeah. such a period of being in big institutions to then doing your own thing yeah so yeah so you know while i was at Deutsche, i did lots of other roles as well i you know i was in asia where i ran some, some of the asia research groups there um you know i came back to london i sort of lived in singapore for a period of time i did cross-market research back in london then at namura i ran the international strategy group as well uh, based in london in europe um, so I'd spent like, you know, almost like 20 years working for big banks and doing kind of research. But the reason I left to set up MacroHive was that, number one, um, I wanted to change, you know, having worked for big companies all my life, I just wanted something different. And I naturally have quite an entrepreneurial streak within me. So whenever I was within banks, I was always experimenting with new ways of doing research, new ways of communicating, just, I was very experimental. Um, and so I kind of felt, look, I want to uh, you know, scratch that itch. The other thing was that what I found after the financial crisis was that banks became more and more regulated, and there were more and more restrictions in how you could uh, behave as a researcher or indeed any other role within a bank. And philosophically, as a researcher, I, I find that, while I think obviously I have fantastic ideas, a lot of ideas I get are just simply by interacting with other people, speaking to traders, speaking to investors, speaking to other researchers, speaking to colleagues at other banks. But with the new regulations, you're not really allowed to do that, or you, you're very scared of speaking to somebody that you're not allowed to speak to. So suddenly your, your, your universe contracts massively. 
and that was a big problem for me. And so I, I was grappling with that while I was, uh, you know, at either Deutsche or Nomura. And so for me, it was kind of a natural step then to say, look, let me just set up an organization, a startup, Macrohive, where the DNA of the organization would be, um, well, first of all, research centric. So it's all about the research and how research can help investors make money. Whereas when you're a bank, research is kind of a secondary role. The, you know, the main guys are the traders and the sales guys and research supports them. Um, but, you know, within Macrohive, you know, our job is research. Everything is research and how it adds value for, for investors. But then also culturally, what I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure we're as networked as possible so that we talk to our subscribers. Uh, you know, we have a Slack room for subscribers. So we all talk to each other all the time. You know, I speak to lots of other independent researchers outside of Macrohive. I speak to our investors a lot more easily on WhatsApp groups and so on. So it's a much richer conversation that you can have um, than I would have had inside a bank. So, and so we've, you know, we've been running Macrohive now for a year and a half, and it's really evident to me that the the culture, the freedom, just all of that is is, is just like ten standard deviations better than being inside of a bank. So that was kind of the rationale from 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 sort of doing that. Um, on a, on a not to delve too much into to personal life, but yeah, sure. I mean, how 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 has that been? I mean, I assume you you have a family, and you know, you said you were traveling around the world, as I as you imagine, in the position that you're in, to now doing what you're you're doing. I mean, just leave the pandemic aside for a, for a moment, because obviously we've been forced into this. But yeah, I mean, otherwise. Um, how was managing that when you're when you were traveling a lot, and then how is it now? In the over, how's it been over the last year and a half? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I got married. Uh, I've been married for a long time. You know, my I met my wife at university, so we've been together. You know, since you know the beginning of our kind of adult lives, and we had children relatively young in our twenties. We had our kids because we we got married very young as well. Um, so I have two kids now: one um, a daughter who's seventeen, a son who's who's uh, thirteen, almost fourteen. Um, when we, when I was traveling a lot, it, at a personal level, it's a challenge, you know, because you're, um, cause it's, it's one of those paradoxes where in most people find this when they have families that the, the time you reach your kind of your busiest in a work context, when you're managing teams and you're traveling a lot is usually the point where you have young kids as well, you know, in, in a family. So all the pressure is, is coming at once. And so it was a challenge. Um, and so, you know, if I was away for one week or two weeks, my wife would be left alone with the kids and that would kind of drive her crazy. So what I then did was I tried to restrict the amount of travel I did. Um, and then the other thing I did was I also started to take like one or two days off after I came back from travel. So in the past, I would have just gone straight back to work. But this time I took a day or two off and that kind of helped uh, you know, manage some of some of that, uh, you know, some of that distance. The other thing I, I've done for a long time now is I'm, I'm very disciplined about my work hours. So I typically try to finish work around five or six, so that I'm at home, you know, to have supper and hang out with the family. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I continue that to this day, even though we have a startup, and there's a, uh, you know, there's a reputation that if you have a startup, mm. you have to work. 24 seven, my policy is, you know, I work nine to five on weekdays in the evenings and weekends, I don't do any work. It's, it's family time uh, alone. What that then means is that you have to make sure your productivity during office hours uh, is very high. And uh, it's very easy to increase your productivity. Most people waste 
uh, half their day at work. Typically, you know, they're checking emails, they're talking to people, then pointless mm. meetings. And so people's productivity is incredibly low. And so if you tweak your schedule a bit, your productivity can kind of quadruple and you don't need to work crazy hours, which then allows much more time to spend with your with your family. So is that something that you've come to realize? What did you think if I was to talk to the 21-year-old, 22-year-old <laughs> Bill? Would it have been, right, everyone else around me is doing this? I, yeah, I need to... yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's for sure it's an evolution. You know, early mm. on when you're young, starting up in a career, you know, you're... you're you know, you're, you're kind of scared half the time. And so you're, you're just trying to sort of keep your head above water. Um, but as time goes on, you have more confidence in yourself. Um, but even when you're more senior, there still is this kind of culture of working long hours and, and outdoing each other. Um, but if you believe in your way of doing things and your output is much higher than everybody else, your res the results, you know, uh, you know, are, are, you know, the results are the results you know you're yep. you're writing twice as much as everybody else you're talking about more markets than anybody else so you know so so then it's very evident which which approach works so so talking about your experience and your skills one of the things that you've talked about here is your your kind of numerical ability um yeah. kind of born out of when you were young and you're kind of uh, i guess picking up mathematics and and kind of enjoying that but then you talked about traveling around the world, talking to clients and talking to traders and talking to investors. Are these um, typically in your mind, I mean, these, these would be kind of the alternate skills that would one would typically possess because people tend to go interpersonal way or technical way. Um, what's your view on that? I mean, is there, in terms of career advice, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think in the end, you have to stick to your strengths, you know, work out what you're good at and just double down on that. You know, if you have some weaknesses, yeah. just do enough to kind of manage those weaknesses. But, you know, if you're really strong on something, then just go for it. So, you know, while I am mathematical, I'm not a hardcore mathematician, nor am I a quant. So in the kind of the stereotypical, you know, super geek, I'm not in that territory. <laughs> so I wouldn't naturally kind of be on the spectrum in that, in that respect. Um, but the kind of the mathematical side of me would be more in terms of, um, First, just being comfortable with numbers and just having this philosophy of uh, verify ideas with numbers um, and uh, and just being comfortable with just the, the basic common sense around how to work with data. So I kind of have that. Now, in terms of interacting with other people, what's behind that is really I have a natural curiosity to learn, you know, which, you know, so, so, the, so it kind of goes back to the maths point where if, if you have a curiosity to learn, then, you know, it, it, it's not a natural then to say, okay, let me verify it. Just let me check with the data. Um, and so talking to other people then, for me, it's it, the underlying source of that is curiosity and wanting to learn. So when you speak to somebody, when you go into a different culture, learning about the culture, learning about how to gain insights from somebody else, you know, so, so everyone that you interact with almost becomes a teacher to you. So, so, so that, you know, that, again, it's kind of part of that kind of student mentality or learning mentality to kind of keep that, you know, with you throughout your life and whatever context you're in. Pleasure. Thank you very yeah. much for your time. Great. No, thanks. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Look forward to uh, hearing more from uh, your, your audience as well. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.